Well, good morning. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us our spiritual growth is not just for our own benefit. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also spread that love to one more person. As Grace said, Easter is coming up uh, April the 21st. It's a late Easter this year. We'll have three services, 8, 15, 9, 30, and 11. We would love to have you worship with us at any of those service times. If you have flexibility in your schedule and you would like to serve people who might want to come later in the day, we would encourage you to come to the 815 service. That one will have the most leg room in all likelihood. And so if you are able and willing to worship at that time, that would be a gift to others. If you are not, please come to whatever service you can come to. We look forward to worshiping together. I also need to say a shout out to our middle school students today. Typically they have their 11 o'clock class, but they willingly gave up their classroom today for the uh, college career fair. So thank you to the 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. Uh, we are glad to have you in here, and you will, you will hang in there just fine, I have no doubt. Uh, you pay better attention than your parents sometimes, but don't tell them I told you that. Well, these days, it is all the rage to teach your kids sign language. It's like the thing. Uh, I asked in the last service, and no one did it. So apparently, in our house, it is all the rage to teach your kids sign language. And uh, our daughter, um, who has an extra chromosome, they especially encourage us to teach her sign language because they, the experts said, and they've been correct, that she would be able to express herself uh, through sign language long before she could do so verbally. And that's been the case. At this point, she probably knows like three to seven words she can say consistently, like the the important ones, mama, dada, up, the Taco Bell, like the kind of words you just need to navigate the world. But she can sign like 30 to 60 words consistently. It's really amazing what what she's able to do. The first two words we were encouraged to teach her were the, the basics, more and all done. More and all done, or in her language, more and all done. It's a dialect, apparently. (laughs) But they encourage you to teach more and all done first so that kids can kind of regulate what their bodies are telling them. They can communicate what their bodies are telling them, especially at mealtime, but at other times too, like when I'm holding her upside down. You know, dad does holding you upside down. More, all done. More, 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 more. She loves being held upside down. I don't know if she gets dizzy, but if she does, she likes it. So my sermon today is honestly no more complicated than that. More and all done. You'll see why. We are continuing a series of sermons leading up to Easter and what the early Christians called the seven deadly sins. They saw these as like the core sins, the root sins out of which all other immoralities grew. For each of the seven deadly sins, they identified a Christ-like virtue as its opposite. And so what we've been doing is kind of working through the list of the sins and their Christ-like virtue alternatives. The point of the series is this, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and being transformed. 
Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and being transformed. So that if you have put your faith in Jesus, or if you ever come to put your faith in Jesus, if you trust your life into Jesus' hands, if you welcome him into the center of your life, you are forgiven and you are being transformed. And so our hope for this series, my prayer for this series, is that it will draw each of us into a deeper relationship with God. First of all, by, by showing us how much forgiveness it really does take to forgive all of our sin. But second of all, as we are able to name places in our lives where there is still work to be done. As you and I, before God, can name places in our lives, in our character, where there's still work to be done. So we've been working through the list, but we don't have that many weeks left, so we're going to start doubling up for a few weeks. So today, we want to look at two of the seven deadly sins and their corresponding virtues. And the sins are gluttony and lust, and the virtues are temperance and chastity. Gluttony and lust, and the, the virtues are temperance and chastity. Now, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I have a body. You know, come to think of it, m many of you seem to as well. Sometimes Christians can get so focused on our hearts or our, you know, our souls that we act like our bodies are a bad thing or like they're an incidental thing. But as far as I can tell, part of what it means to be human is that you have a body. And bodies, in all their shapes and sizes and colors, bodies are good and God-given. At the same time, because of sin, bodies are not always trustworthy. We've talked about this last week, uh, the fall when creation rebelled against the Creator. And in doing so, we, we entered into rebellion against the Creator. It's called the fall. It's called sin. And at this point, sin has infected all parts of our world. Sin affects our relationship with God. And so there's a gap that we need Jesus to bridge. Sin affects our relationship with one another, right? We experience that. Sin affects our relationship with the work that we do. We've talked about that in the past. But, and this is sort of where we're going today. Sin also affects our relationships with ourselves. Sin affects the way that, uh, how we relate with our own hearts, our own minds, our own bodies. Sin has seeped into all parts of creation. Now, this brings us to gluttony and to lust. Because as human beings with bodies, our bodies tell us all kind of things. Right? Like, I am hungry. Feed me. I, am, I want something to drink. I want to go to sleep. I don't want to get out of bed. Uh, I want physical activity. That's kind of the opposite of the previous one. I want physical activity. I want physical touch. As we get older, our bodies will tell us, I want uh, physical intimacy. They're wired to tell us these things. So the question at the center of this sermon is, do our, will our desires control us or will we control our desires? Will our desires control us or will we control our desires? And that's kind of where gluttony and lust got put together because it's the same idea. Will we control those desires or will those con desires control us? Gluttony is defined as overindulgence, especially in food or alcohol. Overindulgence, especially in food or alcohol, what today we might call a binge, binging on food, binging on alcohol, binging on any number of things. In the Middle Ages, some Christians also said that gluttony included going into debt, spending all your money on fancy food and drinks. 
Uh, so in other words, you didn't have any money to help the hungry because you'd spent all your money on yourself. The point being, think about what the binge actually costs. Think about what the binge costs you. Think about what the binge costs the world around you. Lust is often defined as an intense longing, especially for sexual intimacy or gratification. Now, Scripture defines marriage as the only relationship suitable for sexual intimacy, but we live in a culture that preaches something very different. And often what lust does is it takes our eyes off what we already have to be thankful for. Whether, whether through affairs or through uh, fantasies or pornography, it takes our eyes off what we already have to be thankful for so that people with the gift of marriage can be thankful for the companionship of their spouse. People with the gift of singleness can be thankful for their good friends, what the, what the ancients used to call soul friends, the people that you can call at 2 a.m. in the morning, any morning, the people who will love you even at your worst who will show you the unconditional love of God but lust takes our eyes off what we have to be thankful for whether it's the companionship of our spouse or the companionship of our soul friends it takes our eyes off those things and focuses them on things that are really not ours this brings us to the passages Chris read for us earlier, 1 Peter chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 3. And what I want to look at in these passages is how to follow Jesus from lust and gluttony towards self-control. Following Jesus from lust and gluttony towards self-control. Or in other words, what do we do with these desires that we have? Don't forget the good news. Through Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven. Your sin is forgiven and it is defeated. When you put your faith in Jesus, your sin is forgiven and it is defeated. And so you and I get to join Jesus in the work of cleaning out the old, cleaning out the diseased, cleaning out the residue, uprooting what is no longer healthy, what is diseased, and planting in its place Christ-like virtues. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore... With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering, and he is afraid that these hardships are going to make them go back to some old behaviors they ought not go back to. He's afraid that the tough times are going to push them back to doing things they did before they put their faith in Christ. So he's writing a passage about self-control. What's interesting is he starts his self-control passage by talking about the return of Jesus. Christians believe that Jesus is coming back. Jesus will return to earth someday in the future, and he will come back to take his followers home. So Christians don't just follow Jesus on earth. We follow Jesus into the life everlasting, into eternity with our creator. And Peter writes that you and I have hope. You and I have a hope that is greater than our hardships, you and I have a hope that is greater than our coping mechanisms, and that hope is that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon. And then he says, don't conform to your evil desires. Now, sometimes ministers go a little overboard with this. 
and we start to act like all desire is evil. But you could imagine a culture, maybe the one we live in, that would say that all desire is good. So for point number one, I'm going to propose something in the middle. And here it comes. Point number one, number one, number, 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 number one. Do they do that in the middle school class every week? They should start. How do we follow Jesus from lust and gluttony to self-control? Number one, be willing to examine your desires. Be willing to examine your desires. Because the truth is some desires are good and some desires are bad. And some desires are just neutral. And it's how we act on them or don't act on them that makes them good or bad. So it is a step of maturity for me, Michael Flake. It is a step of maturity for you to be willing to put these desires out on the table and let God poke around on them a little bit. Now this could be a professional desire. It could be a personal desire. It could be a bodily desire. It could be a deep in your heart desire. We put our desires out there and we ask God for clarity. And God's best clarity comes to us through the Bible, through learning the Bible, being taught the Bible, studying the Bible. For example, I do not have to ask my wife Mandy if the toilet seat should be left up or down. That has been made perfectly clear to me. There is no longer need for discussion about it. Now God works similarly to that, not about the toilet seat. But there are some things in the Bible where God has just made something clear, and there's no, no more need for discussion about it. But there's a, plenty of things that the Bible does not make clear, and there's plenty of things that you and I will run into that the Bible may not even address, certainly doesn't address directly. What do we do in those situations? I find it extremely helpful to ask for the wisdom of a few mature Christian friends or family members. I just put the desire out there. Put your desire out there to a few people that you trust. Well, again, whether it be a life desire, a professional desire, a personal desire, a deep-in-your-heart desire, put the desire out there to a few people you trust and get their wisdom, get their perspective. And in my experience, you usually have to ask wise and mature people for their opinion. Rarely do wise and mature people volunteer their opinion. Usually you have to ask for it. So as you and I are examining our desires, the desires that we have, whatever they may be, study the scripture and listen for God and proactively ask a few wise, mature, as best you can tell they're mature people, Christians, people you think their counsel would be beneficial so that's number one. Number two, how to follow Jesus from lust and gluttony to self-control. Number two is to pursue holiness. Pursue holiness, the good kind. Pursue the good kind of holiness. When I was at Davidson, I had a professor who, I don't know how class discussion got there, but um, she started referencing a student she had taught in the past, and her comment about him was this, he is a holy person. Then she stopped and said, the good kind. 
And I think what she meant by that is this person was not holier than thou. He did not look down on people who were not as spiritually, you know, with it as he was. But in fact, he had a vibrant relationship with God, and that played out in how he lived his life. And so she said he was a holy person, the good kind. Holiness is one of God's attributes. God is holy. But what does it mean to be holy? As a kid, I thought it meant full of holes. And I didn't understand what it meant that God was holy, how he was full of holes. I used to have a, sh a shirt I preached in that I called my holy shirt. And it was thrown away without my knowledge. I can no longer preach in it. I'm not sure if by family members or church members or both. The holy shirt is gone. What it means when we say God is holy is it means that God is set apart. And specifically, God is set apart in his purity. So God is set apart from creation. God is set apart from you and from me in his purity, in the purity of his character, the purity of his motives, the purity of his love. And then in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, and this is what Peter quotes, God says, be holy because I am holy. So God calls us to be holy people. People set apart in our purity. People set apart by the purity of our character, the purity of our motives, the purity of our love. In other words, holiness is still a good thing. Sometimes holiness gets a bad rap. Holiness is still a good thing. Holiness is what God wants for our lives but we don't become Christians by being holy, right? Jesus will take us no matter the condition of our lives. The more broken your life is, the deeper his compassion for you. You don't become a Christian by being holy. But once you've put your faith in Jesus, he does want to do a transformative work in your life. And that may make you do some things differently than, than most people do them around you. And so we want to proceed in ways that honor God, even if it makes us stand out a little bit. It's not a bad thing to, to stand out a little bit for walking on God's path. That's sort of like the, the human definition of holiness, standing out a little bit because you're choosing to walk on God's path, being set apart from the culture around you because you walk on God's path. This brings us to Philippians 3, which says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In other words, as we are pursuing holiness, the good kind, as we are pursuing holiness, it helps us to have a model. Because what do gluttony and lust do? They distract our eyes. Our eyes get distracted by things they probably don't need to be distracted by. And so Paul says, fix your eyes on a person or on people that are a good model to you. A person who's further along in their faith than you are. A person who pursues holiness, the good kind. A person that you hope you'll become more like. Who do you want to be when you grow up? When you grow up in the faith, who do you want to be? 
And so I'd encourage you to kind of identify that person or those people, a, a model. And if you can, spend a little time with them. Ask them how they got to where they got. What do they do and why do they do what they do? Just try to learn from them a little bit. You may figure out their life and their growth as a, a Christian was not as linear as you thought it was. And not as pain-free as you thought it was. But the point is, where are our eyes looking? The passage in Philippians 3 says, put your eyes on someone who's a good model for what it means to follow Jesus. That gets us to number three, number three, number, number, number three. Establish who your God is. So as we follow Jesus towards self-control, we want to, number three, establish who our God is. The passage continues, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. So Paul is saying there are people who live as enemies of the work and ministry of Jesus. And then he has these sort of three tough descriptors of them. <laughs> he says their destiny is destruction because in the end God wins. He says their glory is in their shame. In other words, they are proud of what they should be ashamed of. But the third one is most relevant for us today, which is their God is their stomach. They bow before their stomach and they do whatever it tells them to do. Now, before you imagine someone like trying to receive instruction from their tummy by like bending over, is more limber than I am, clearly. Remember the point of what's being said here. Paul's saying that what these folks do is they run after fulfilling every desire they have. So if their body tells them to do it, if their heart tells them to do it, if their mind tells them to do it, it must be right. Now that's a trap we can fall into too, isn't it? <laughs> my body told me to do it, my heart told me to do it, my mind told me to do it, so I did it. And Paul says, well, hold up, hold up. <laughs> he uses the God language to ask this question, who's in charge here? Are my desires in charge? Am I in charge? Is God in charge? Do I chase after every desire or do I take my desires to God and say, Lord, what would you have me do with this desire? What have you already taught about this desire? What, what wise counsel could I receive about this desire? Who is God in our lives? And as we establish who is God in our lives, it helps us think about what we do with the desires or ha we have. And that gets us to number four, number four. This is the last one, number four. Remember where your ultimate hope and fulfillment is. How do you follow Jesus towards self-control? You remember where your ultimate hope and fulfillment is. The passage says that their mind, that's the enemies of Jesus, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is fascinating 
because Peter wrote 1 Peter, a guy named Paul wrote Philippians. So you've got Peter and Paul, like the two significant leaders of the early church. They're both writing passages about self-control. And in the self-control passages, they both bust out the return of Jesus. They bring out the big guns in the self-control passages. And I think the reason they do that is because self-control is hard. Like, if this world is all that there is, why don't we act on every desire? If this world is all there is, why don't we act on every bit of pleasure-seeking, every impulse that we have? You only live once. As Yoda would say, once only you live. Y'all laughed at that more than any other service, so I want to thank you. The Bible's point is, this world is not all that there is. As a follower of Jesus, or if you're become a follower of Jesus, your greatest hope is not in this world. Your greatest fulfillment is not in this world. They're in the world that you have not yet seen, but only tasted. And when we focus on the here and now, when we think the here and now is our greatest chance for hope, and the here and now is our greatest chance for fulfillment, it's really hard to say all done. It's really hard to say no more. It's really hard to say no thank you. Not for me. But if we can turn our focus to eternity, eternity with God, if we remember that Jesus is coming back soon, Jesus is going to take us to our forever home, self-control may not be easy, but it may actually become possible because we could see self-control in its bigger picture. Self-control is not just what you're saying no to. Self-control is also about what you're saying yes to. Self-control is saying no to eating a box of popsicles this afternoon because you're going to your favorite restaurant for dinner. Self-control is not staying up all night tonight surfing the internet because tomorrow you're going to Disney World. It's not just what you're saying no to, it's also about what you're saying yes to. Self-control is realizing that, that even the most amazing moment on earth is still no, no comparison to even the dullest moment in heaven. Now, I don't know if there are dull moments in heaven, but I'm just trying to make a comparison there. That the best of earth is still nowhere near even the dullest of heaven. And thus the passage ends this way. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So how do we move towards self-control? Let me just make it, make it actionable so you can write it down on your phone. How do we move towards self-control? First, we live in anticipation of Jesus. Second, we live in relationship with Jesus. So we live in anticipation of Jesus, and we live in relationship with Jesus. We live in anticipation of Jesus. We ask Jesus to impress upon us that the world, as important as it is, is not all that there is. That our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate hope is in the life everlasting, where we will see Jesus in all his glory, in all his splendor, and with one look into the deep and compassionate eyes of Jesus, your greatest fulfillment, sense of fulfillment, will be fulfilled. 
as you will know, as you will know, as you will know that you are fully known and fully loved with one look into his eyes. So we live in anticipation of Jesus, but we also live in relationship with Jesus. We ask for the strength to follow in Jesus' ways, the courage to say no and the courage to say yes, the courage to say not now, the courage to take our desires to God and to ask Him to guide us. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. This is one of the significant highlights of the Christian faith. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. Jesus knows what it's like to have desires. Bodily desires, personal desires, deep heart-level desires. Jesus knows what it's like to have desires. Jesus knows what it's like to not get everything you desire. Point you to scriptural examples if you want them after. And at the same time, Jesus lived a life of temperance. Jesus lived a life of uh, chastity. Jesus lived a life without sin. He lived a life in celibacy. He, he lived in perfect submission to God. He, he was tempted but resisted temptation even after he had not eaten for 40 days. I struggle to resist temptation after I miss a meal. He did it after 40 days. So he is the greatest model of a life in, lived in proper self-control, but he's more than a model because he invites us to live, to really live, to be fully alive, to follow him and to let him transform us every step of the way. And this is my final little point. The scripture says that in eternity, Jesus will transform your body. It does not say he will get you out of your body. It says he will transform your body. In other words, bodies matter to God. And what you do with your body and don't do with your body matters to God. Because in the end, you matter to God. Not just your heart. Not just your thoughts. All of you matters to God. And he invites you to live in anticipation of Jesus and in relationship with Jesus. So I want to point you to one last scripture as we prepare to uh, close our service singing together. The scripture, and my question to you is this, what difference would this God-given promise make in your life? What difference would this God-given promise make in your life? And here it is, 2 Timothy 1.7. The spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power love, and self-discipline. I encourage you, if you don't have time to write the whole verse down, you could at least write down the reference there, 2 Timothy, that's what the two means, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 is the chapter, the big number, 7 is the little number. If you have the Bible app, it's easy, you just type it in, but if you have like a physical copy of the Bible, just use a table of contents, and we've got them, you can take them home. The passage says, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So when you put your faith in Christ, he sends God the Holy Spirit into your life, and God the Holy Spirit gives you access to all of God's riches, God's power, God's love, God's self-discipline. Not to make you timid, but that, so you could live a different sort of life. 
So I would just ask you to reflect on that verse this week, to, to spend time just thinking about what does it mean for you, what does it say about God, and what does it mean for you. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, whether to talk to God or to listen to God. This can be a really heavy subject. And so wherever the sermon or the music, wherever it is intersected with your life, just take this moment for personal prayer. Lord, it would be possible for our takeaway from today, after hearing a sermon like this, to be, I need to do better, I need to try harder. I pray that would not be our takeaway. But that we would hear the words of Jesus when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. And so I pray we would be drawn closer to you. I pray we would be transformed through that. Lord, for some of us today, this may be the day where we take that step of faith, and we don't just know about you or try to learn about you, we decide to trust you and trust you with our lives, even the parts that aren't so pretty, even in the places when it's hard. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together with our voices and our offering and our prayer requests.